The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians together. We're going through the book of Corinthians from beginning to end, all 16 chapters, as Paul wrote it. That's his intention. That was the Spirit of God's intention. Could it be read just like any letter from beginning to end in context? We're in a section, verses uh, chapters 12 through 14, it goes together. 12, 13, and 14 is about spiritual gifts. Paul is dealing with a handful of problems in this church that he planted and that he pastored and now from a distance is giving counsel to rectify some of their problems. Biggest problem being division in the church. Some of this division came from specific issues of practice and also theology. One of the biggest problems they had is division over the use of spiritual gifts and how they employed or even understood spiritual gifts. And so he gets a big chunk, chapter 12, 13, and 14, is one unit, one complete argument. It's about spiritual gifts, and it is corrective. They were blowing it in terms of using spiritual gifts. God gave them different spiritual gifts. Some of them were misunderstanding their spiritual gift. A large percentage were being self-centered and had a wrong attitude about their spiritual gift. That's probably the biggest problem. Um, and one of the dominant gifts that was being abused was speaking in tongues. And so that's what all of chapter 14 is about speaking in tongues, which is a message the church of Jesus Christ needs today. Spiritual gifts, and particularly speaking in tongues, what it is, how it is to be done, controversy regarding it, confusion, confusion about it, uh, needs to be addressed. And thank God he's given us his word to help navigate and cut through the confusion on this very complicated topic of speaking in tongues. And that's what all of chapter 14 is about. That's why the title of the message today is Tongues in Balance. Speaking in Tongues in Balance. In other words, uh, uh, thinking about speaking in tongues from a strictly biblical perspective. I want to be as objective as possible today. I'm just looking at verses 1 through 8, 19. And if you're a Christian, you need to be, regardless of your view of tongues, whether you think you speak in tongues, you condemn speaking in tongues as satanic, but you are a Christian, the only thing you need to be committed to, really, sincerely before God, is that you're open to see what the Word of God actually has to say about this. Truly understand it, objectively, as God has given it. And then submit to it, regardless of your experience, your agenda, your practice, your sphere of influence, your friends, your upbringing, your family, whatever. And that means all of us. And that should be our attitude, actually, every time we approach the Bible. God, teach me, um, help me understand, and then God, help me submit to what I have learned and apply to what I have learned. So here, chapter 14, whoa, it's a long one, uh, 40 verses. Uh, it, it's got to be one of the most challenging chapters in the Bible, really. <laughs> when I decided to preach First Corinthians, there were some chapters that just kind of made me nervous. Oh, boy, I hope Jesus returns before I get to chapter 11, verse 16, 1 through 16. Well, Jesus didn't come. That was Anyway, well, this was one of those chapters I feared, 14. Just a lot of exegetical challenges. Um, it's complicated. Listen to John Chrysostom, the early church, very influential early church father of about 400 A.D. Preacher, teacher, exegete, 
writer, and he said, he made a comment about 1 Corinthians 14. When he was looking at this chapter and talking about it, he said, this is an extremely obscure chapter. There are things in here I don't know what Paul is even talking about. And the practice that he is discussing cannot be found today. That's John Chrysostom. So that would be one historical example. And he was a very influential, well-known Christian leader. He's not just some obscure guy. So here's a high-profile Christian leader of the church in 400 A.D. As he looked around the world in the Christian church, he concluded this, this speaking in tongues thing isn't going on today. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what was going on with Paul and the Corinthians. So it's, this is a very difficult chapter to interpret. I kind of feel the same way, actually. Uh, and I, we talked about this in chapter 12. I propose that the uh, practice of speaking in tongues has not been going on even in church history for at least uh, 1,900 years. It's just not there. It wasn't going on. And then, poof, in the 20th century, uh, it came on the scene. And now it's like wildfire all over the place. And um, So John Chrysostom said that. I want to, before I go to chapter 14, I do want to read quickly. Acts, if you've got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 2. Very important, because there's only two places in the Bible that talk about speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And in that context, it's being abused. And Paul's talking about it with a corrective perspective. The only other time that speaking in tongues is talked about is in Acts chapter 2. And there it's just being practiced. There's no explanation. Paul... Unlike Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's explaining it, correcting, putting up parameters, guidelines, etc., exposing things, defining things. Acts chapter 2, there's no explanation. It's, just, it's being practiced. It's just happening. It's a narrative. And it's being practiced the proper way. And that's why I think it's absolutely foundational to understand. So looking at Acts chapter 2 and how uh, speaking in tongues was used, then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, first of all, before we get to chapter 2, Acts 1, verse 14, says that uh, some of the disciples, the apostles, and a whole bunch of other people, so there's about 120 Christians uh, who followed Christ, waiting for the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they're just waiting. What are they doing? Verse 14 of chapter 1 says they got together and they were praying. That's what they were doing. They were devoted themselves to prayer. That's what this group was doing. Devoted themselves to prayer. It was a prayer group. Uh, verse 24, being led by Peter and the apostles, they are praying. They're praying for a new leader. I would propose that in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, when that had come, they were all together once again in one place. What were they doing? I think they were still praying. That's the context. They're praying and waiting. So these 120 believers are praying, waiting on God. And then verse 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues, glossi. This is the same word used in Corinthians, tongues, languages. It's the normal word for language, a spoken language, a known language, a known human language uh, that could be, whether it's English, Spanish, Chinese, etc. But 2,000 years ago, these were language, real human languages. Uh, tongues, uh, as of fire, distributed themselves, and they rested on each of these Believers that were praying, verse 4, waiting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He came to live inside of them. And they began to speak with other tongues. Literally, 
uh, glossi, again, the word for tongue or language. It's just the normal word for language. It doesn't mean gibber. This is very clear. It's not some unintelligible mumbo-jumbo. It is not gibberish that cannot be deciphered. It is a language. That's what it means. This word comes from the word tongue in your mouth because that's what God helps us, has us use to speak a language. The normal usage of the word. Actually, the main usage, if not the exclusive usage of the word. Uh, so they began to speak with other languages. So imagine that. There's about a 100 believers. They're sitting around. They're praying together out loud, a corporate prayer meeting like the GBF prayer meeting. And all of a sudden, whoosh, down comes the Holy Spirit. They're f- filled with the Spirit. And then they began to speak with other tongues. This is not in a room. This is out in public. They've transitioned from a private room to the public scene in Jerusalem. Because they're praying during this holiday season out loud. They're praying in all kinds of different ways, but it's out loud. It's not private prayer. It is public prayer. That's what's really important here. They're praying publicly now with the gift of speaking in tongues, and they're praying in different languages. So instantaneously, all of a sudden, uh, one of these believers that maybe only knew Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic all of a sudden was speaking a language in Egyptian, and they're uh, exalting God, and they're praying, and maybe even singing, praising the Lord in an intelligible language that only Egyptians no, and it was miraculously given. They didn't learn the Egyptian language. Just boom, God gave them that ability. And they're doing this publicly. And they're believers and unbelievers and sojourners from all around in Jerusalem during this holiday season. And they're hearing these believers now speaking in languages, human languages. And they know, wait, those are Jews. How in the world did they know Egyptian and Coptic and Parthenian and all these other languages from around the world. That's where I'm from. I'm going back there next week. And this fellow over here who's a Jew, he's speaking my language perfectly. How in the world did he... I'm going to go find out. And then the person that doesn't know Parthenian language, and they hear it, and it just sounds like mumbo-jumbo because it's not being translated. But the one that knows that language, oh, that's my that's my mother tongue. So that's the scene. Verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were there devout men from every nation under heaven? Uh, because it was the feast season in Jerusalem. That was headquarters, and so they're traveling great distances, some hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to the temple at this time of the season. So ever since Passover, Jerusalem has been jam-packed with Jews from all over the world. Up to, um, who knows, a million or maybe 500,000 people during that time. So they're from all over the world. There they are. They're celebrating. They're out in public. And then there's this core group of people who follow Jesus, praying, waiting. And then all of a sudden, boom, they start praying in all these foreign human languages. Verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming, the crowd came together. So there's a lot of people. And they were bewildered. They were blown away because each one of them was hearing the disciples of Jesus, get this, speak in his own language. The Greek word there is dialect. You know what that is? That is that can only be one thing that is a known human language. That's the word, dialecto. Dialecto is synonymous with glossa, tongues used earlier. They spoke in tongues. They spoke in known human languages. That's what speaking in tongues is. It's the supernatural ability to speak in a known human language, but it's a language you didn't know, you didn't learn, you weren't taught. You're just miraculously, instantaneously given the ability by God to speak that language out loud. And notice 
It's always done in a corporate context. It's always public. This isn't private. So when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. They were bewildered because each one of the disciples was hearing them speak in their own dialect. Verse 7, as a result, they were absolutely amazed and astonished and asking, why are not all these who are speaking, why are not all these people speaking Galileans? How can a Galilean speak perfect uh, Egyptian or whatever it is they were speaking? Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each We hear them in our own language, again, dialect, to which we were born. And here were the dialects. Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. There it is, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Uh, Italiano, who knows what they were speaking in Rome at that time. Both Jews and proselytes. Uh, verse 11, Cretans, Arabs. See, this, this is representing all kinds of languages and then even dialects within those languages being spoken. And the key in verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues, glossize, language, human language. It's understandable. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. How are they doing that? I would propose, based on 1 Corinthians 14, as Paul goes into more detail about what speaking in tongues is, speaking in tongues was a supernatural, miraculous ability to instantaneously speak a human language you never learned, you were never taught, you never saw modeled, and you just were able to speak it. You weren't necessarily able to translate it, which is kind of interesting. It would be like me coming in here, and all of a sudden, boom, I start to speak Swahili. I actually have a friend who knows Swahili. It's weird. And he's whistling, slapping his tongue. He sounds like a, a monkey or something. And I was like, wow, how do you translate that? He said, it's very difficult. Uh, so it's like if I came in here and I started speak, and I had the gift of tongues and I started speaking Swahili. But I didn't have the gift of translation. But I'm speaking it. And it's legitimate. It's a, hu- uh, a legitimate language. It's a human language. And if I don't have the gift of translation, I, I'm doing it, I'm speaking it, but I don't even know what I'm saying. It is bypassing my brain, it's bypassing comprehension. And if I'm doing it to an audience of 200 people and not one of you understands Swahili when I'm doing it, to you it's going to sound like mumbo-jumbo and gibberish. You aren't going to know what I'm saying either. But if there's one or two or five of you in the audience that know Swahili and I'm speaking this, even though I don't know it, the five of you are going to be alarmed and edified and blessed. And say, wow, how does Pastor Cliff know Swahili? And, and you're going to be blessed. That was the gift. So it was a possi- it was possible, clearly, that the person with the gift of tongues may not have had the ability to actually translate it. Some who spoke the gift of tongues actually had the ability to translate as well. By the way, it's the gift of translation is better than the gift of interpretation. Interpretation actually really isn't technically correct. It's, It's simply translating. And it's the word in Greek where we get the word hermeneutics from. Um, So that was... What was going on here in Acts chapter 2? And so they're hearing all of this, uh, verse 12, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity. How in the world is this possible? Saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, so there were mockers and doubters on the sideline who didn't uh, know all these human dialects. Maybe they were fellow Jews and all they knew was Hebrew and Aramaic. And they heard the disciples speaking in all these 15 different languages. And these mockers said, uh, I don't know what everybody's getting all excited about. It sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo to me. They're drunk. They are full of sweet wine. That's what he said at the end of verse 13. 
because the reason they said that is because they didn't understand it because it had not been translated and it wasn't their mother tongue. So now I'll go to 1 Corinthians 14. So that is the first example of speaking in tongues being used. That is the only example of first, uh, speaking in tongues being used in detail other than 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul explains it. It does occur a couple of other times in the book of Acts in a similar way. Uh, but now let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. And I just want to highlight three truths about speaking in tongues uh, that Paul gives that I think are very clear. There's a lot of things we could argue about and debate that are unclear and foggy. I don't even want to talk about those. I want to talk about what is clear. And those become the parameters to help us. But before I do that, I need to tell you and remind you that when I became a Christian early on, I actually the most aggressive people who shared the gospel with me were charismatic Christians who believed in all the gifts and speaking in tongues. Thank God for them because they were aggressive. Those other Calvinistic Baptist sissies wouldn't share the gospel with me. Uh, all those cessationists. I don't know why. But anyway, um, so God, God put me in the midst of a, two charismatic roommates in college and surrounded me with them all over the place and I got the gospel. And then I got saved and became a Christian and then started studying this. And uh, I, I went to charismatic churches for the first two years of my life um, and believed that I had the gift. And during my two-year experience with charismatics, 100% of the time, as best as I can recollect, uh, what I was taught and what I learned was, within the charismatic community, about tongues, were these following beliefs. Every Christian can do it and should do it. If you do do it, it is a sign of being filled with the Spirit. If you do do it, it is a private prayer language that you do at home. When you lock yourself in a closet, in a room, in the bathroom, and do it two times a day, and you're, you're doing it, and it's just between you and God. It's not public. It's private. And also, it was not a known human language. It was um, it was gibberish. It was untranslatable from a human point of view. It wasn't a real human language. They said it was an angelic language that nobody on earth really knew. That's what I was taught 100% of the time. And clearly, we've already seen that Paul said, spiritual gifts are for edifying others, not yourself. Uh, also, it's uh, spiritual gifts are to be done publicly, not privately, because gifts are for edifying others, not self. Uh, clearly from Acts chapter 2, the, the gift for, the word for, uh, glossa tongue was a human language. It's not gibberish. It's a known human language. Um, so those were just, those are important truths to keep in mind because there are even evangelicals who are not, who don't speak in tongues who will argue and say, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to leave open the possibility that tongues, uh, and this thing going on in the charismatic move, movement is legit because I'm, I'm open but cautious. Uh, John Piper would be a perfect example. He's a Baptist guy, a uh, good Bible teacher, and, and his position now, at least it was last week, or who knows where it's now, but was I'm open but cautious. I'm not a full cessationist. I don't believe that tongues has ceased, um, even though he doesn't speak in tongues, as far as I know. And the reason is because he's got a lot of friends who are charismatic who apparently have this experience, and he respects them highly. So it's like, who am I to deny the work of God, if they've got some private gibberish thing they do in their closet at home. I mean, I can't say that doesn't happen. That's his reason. It's not a theological reason. It's a personal reason, an experiential reason, a social reason, not a biblical reason. But John Piper, highly respected, great Bible teacher, faithful pastor, that would be very clear. He writes and preaches on this, so uh, it's out in the open. But that would be his reason. And I would say, well, we can't go based on somebody's experience. We gotta just, let's look at the Bible and see what it says. And so, it was scripture that actually amended my view and changed my view. 
from supposedly thinking that I actually spoke in tongues as a private prayer language on a regular basis in my closet uh, by myself as I was taught, uh, this meaningless language that only God knows. I don't even know what I'm saying, but God does. Uh, so that's what I believed in. It was Scripture that set me straight. And so I want to highlight just those basic principles here. Oh, by the way, the other thing that I was taught as a charismatic, and I find this to be true among most Pentecostals or charismatics, is they put a premium on the gift of, spirit, of speaking in tongues. That it is like priority number one. It is the most important of the 19 gifts, at least the churches I went to. When Paul says just the opposite. And he's going to say just the opposite in our first point. So let's go ahead and look there. Um, so let's look at these three points. First, we'll look at the first five verses. The first point Paul wants to make very clearly is that prophecy is greater than tongues. Prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues. Uh, let's look what he says. He says, pursue love. This is a command. This is a very specific word, pursue. It's a strong word. Relentlessly go after, pursue with all your strength as the greatest priority and never stop this quality of love that I just explained in chapter 13. That needs to take precedence over your desire and pursuit for spiritual gifts and tongues. Get your priorities right, Christian. That's what he's, he's telling them. So pursue after relentlessly the priority of love. It trumps all. It takes precedence overall in proper balance with everything else. Yet, at the same time, you Corinthians may think that I minimized speaking in tongues in the last chapter or marginalized it, but I'm not at all, Corinthians. So pursue Love aggressively, but yes, desire the spiritual gifts. I'm not saying forget about tongues and throw it out or prophecy or the spiritual gifts. They're important. God gave them to us to build the body. So pursue love with a passion, but yes, desire spiritual gifts. Desire, uh, zeluto, zealous, uh, be zealous about them. Zeal, hot, uh, to have a desire. Uh, that was the same command he said in chapter 12, verse 31. Desire Spiritual gifts, but desire the greater gifts, the priority ones. You guys are desiring tongues, which is on the bottom of the rung out of 19. You've got it backwards. So pursue the gift or desire the gifts. Look forward to the gifts. Be edified by the gifts, but have the right priority. And so that's why in chapter 12, verse 31, he says, but the greater gifts. And he's going to show Now I'm going to show you the greater gift, which is prophecy. Prophecy is greater than tongues. So he goes on chapter 14, verse 1. So pursue relentlessly. Uh, love and at the same time allow for and even desire and ask God to bless your church with spiritual gifts, which means gifted people to help edify the body and balance regarding the 19 gifts that we've already talked about. And when it comes to desiring spiritual gifts for your church, as Corinthians, you should be desiring more than anything else prophecy. What is that? That's direct revelation from God. We have direct revelation today in our Bible right here. We don't need the gift of prophecy because we have the Bible. It was the prophets who gave us and wrote the Bible. Do we have prophecy today? Yes, it is inscripturated in your Bible. So we do have prophecy. McManus, do you believe in prophecy? Yes, I do. It's right here. I believe it's inscripturated in the canon of Scripture. It was written by the prophets, spoken by the prophets. Do you believe that ongoing prophecy, direct revelation is happening today? No, I do not. Why? For a lot of reasons. One, it was predicted that it would end at some point. We saw that last week in 1 Corinthians 13. And we have everything we need to know right here in Scripture. God said so in a few Passages and the apostles and prophets, they're dead, they're gone, they're the foundation of the church. So we should make a priority of prophecy, and we do. Every Bible church should. It's right here. Our focus needs to be the word of God, divine revelation in your Bible. And it needs to be the center of everything. Sunday school, Bible studies, your prayer time, uh, corporate worship together, 
uh, how I live my life, how I raise my kids, how I manage my money, how I run my home. Uh, we need to rely on the prophecy, divine revelation God has given to us in his word. And then verse 2, he says, uh, so very simple right there. Um, pursue love, that's the greatest priority, yet don't minimize and disparage the gifts, despite what I just said. Uh, but especially go after prophecy, divine revelation, which we now have in our Bible, verse 2, for one who speaks. And, and don't pursue tongues as a priority. And here's why. Well, why is that? Well, because for one who speaks in tongues, and this is a key phrase, for the person who speaks in a tongue, actually it's singular, for the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Now we saw that in Acts. When the true believers got the gift of speaking in tongues, primarily it was, get this, it was a prayer language. And here's where charismatic theology messes it up. I would agree that it is primarily a prayer language, but it's not a private prayer language. It is a public prayer language that can be articulated, and it's a public prayer language of a known human language that can be understood by someone with the mother tongue. So it is always a public prayer language, but it's more than that. It can be public prayers, as we see all throughout the Bible. Uh, one of the greatest uh, prayers in the Bible is in 1 Kings 8, where Solomon dedicates the temple, and he says that he holds up his hands and he prays out loud before thousands of Jews, probably, and he prays out loud. He prays a prayer. It's divine revelation, and even though it's a prayer, people are edified by it. They are encouraged by it. I read it today, and I'm encouraged by it. I read it today, even though it's a prayer, and I learn from it. I learn that I am a pathetic sinner in that prayer of Solomon, and I need Jesus. So it was divine revelation, but it was in the form of a prayer. And that's what speaking in tongues was. It was public, corporate prayer of a known human language. And we're going to see this later in 1 Corinthians uh, 14. Well, explicitly, I'll just show you. Verse 14, uh, Paul says, if I pray in a tongue. There it is. And then he gives three different kinds of prayers. By the way, he uses the word prosukomai in verse 14, which is the normal word for prayer. Uh, if I pray in a tongue, if I speak in tongues, a prayer supernaturally of a known human language, but I don't have the gift of translation, then I don't understand what I'm even praying in a tongue, and my mind is unfruitful. And nobody's going to be edified, so hopefully there's a translator there, because if there's somebody to translate the speaking in tongues that came out in the form of a prayer, then everybody can be edified, not just those who knew it in their mother tongue. So it's a prayer, and then he uses words like uh, Eucharisto in verse 16, speaking in tongues in the form of a Eucharistic thanksgiving prayer. The, that's where we get the word Eucharist from. And then verse 16, another form of prayer, speaking in tongues, is eulageo. That's where we get the word eulogy. So he uses actually... Uh, and then another one, follow in verse 15, speaking in tongues in the form of a follow or a psalo, where we get psalms, the psalms, which are prayers written by David and others in your Bible. Revelatory divine revelation prayers in a language we can understand. So he uses four different words to describe speaking in tongues, and they are all synonyms for prayer. So speaking in tongues, was a form of revelatory divine revelation through prayers. And it can even be sung. So some, maybe some of these people were speaking in tongues in a song because psalms were written to be sung, many of them in your Old Testament. So this is what speaking in tongues was. So going back to verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue, a legitimate tongue, does not speak to men but to God. What does that mean? He's not speaking directly to men as a teacher would or as a prophet would. Uh, he is speaking to God, primarily a prayer like Solomon did. 
That's what he means. It's a prayer spoken in human language so that others could listen in and be blessed by the divine revelation of the content of that prayer. So for when one speaks in a tongue, uh, in a tongue does not speak to men, but uh, directly to God. For no one understands, unless it's translated, but in his spirit, he speaks in mysteries. He's speaking divine revelation. And if it's not translated, nobody knows what he's saying. If it's not your mother tongue, that's what verse 2 means. And the reason that prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues, these divine prayers, he says in verse 3, but the one who prophesies gets this, speaks to men directly. That's what a prophet did. So a prophet spoke directly to the people with divine revelation. Someone who spoke in tongues wasn't speaking to the people. He was speaking to God. And if anybody was around, they could be, they were allowed to listen in and overhear and eavesdrop in on this divine revelation and be blessed as a result. So the first reason that uh, tongue, tongues is less than or that prophecy is greater than tongues is that prophecy is spoken directly to the people to edify them. And it was always in a known language of the people. But they are the audience. In tongues, God primarily is the audience. And that's why one of the first reasons why he says prophecy is greater. Second reason why in verse 3 prophecy is greater. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification. When someone spoke in tongues, they were speaking primarily to God in a known human language that they had never learned supernaturally. But they're not speaking to God so that God might be edified and built up. God doesn't need edification. He knows everything. He is perfect. We're the ones that need edification. Uh, so when you spoke in tongues, you were speaking to God as a prayer, as a praise, divine revelation. But with prophecy, you were speaking to the people, not for praise, but for those three words that Paul uh, gives us. The purpose of prophecy was for edification. That's oikadameo, to build up, to build up the people with divine revelation. Also exhortation, uh, to stir up to action, and also for consolation. That was to comfort, to, to cheer up. So three specific words he gives for the purpose of prophecy. Build up, stir up, cheer up at the end of verse 3. That wasn't the purpose of tongues. You didn't, you didn't speak in tongues to people to edify them, console them, or encourage them. You spoke to God with divine prayer. That's why prophecy is greater than tongues in the congregation of believers. So go after that. Don't make a priority of speaking in tongues. Uh, verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies itself. What does that mean? Well, it's encouraging, it's edifying to yourself because if you have the legitimate gift of tongues, you have this supernatural ability, spontaneous ability, to speak in a language you didn't uh, learn arduously over time that you have never been taught. Studying languages is hard. I hated Spanish when I was in high school because it was so hard. I got to memorize all this vocabulary in these congregations and then I was horrible at the pronunciation. I wanted to give up Spanish 1, Spanish 2, Spanish 3. And here, 30 years later, guess what? I don't remember any of it. Anyway, but it was required. But language is hard. And then I took Greek. Man, that was hard. That is painful. Hebrew, even more difficult. Amen. That, that was Hebrew, by the way. Amen. So it is very difficult to challenge uh, to learn foreign languages. And so that's why this was so cool that, I mean, I just think if I have the gift of tongues today and God gave me the gift of uh, Francais, oui, 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 uh, that'd be pretty cool. I've always wanted to, to speak French because it sounds kind of cool. Uh, go to a nice French restaurant and actually be able to read the menu. But anyway, I don't have that ability. 
But if I did, and I could do that, and I knew I had the gift, I was like, man, I'm actually speaking French. That would be edifying to me. It would be encouraging to me. God's given me this gift. He's blessed me. Wow, this is awesome. This is a supernatural ability. And Paul says later in chapter 14, it is a sign gift. It is a sign gift. Prophecy, get this, was not a sign gift. Tongues was a sign gift. And we'll talk about what that means later. So there's a lot of distinctions between the two. So it is edifying if you're able to do this. Uh, charismatics will turn this around or people who believe in private gibberish in the prayer closet and say, see, there it is. When you speak in tongues, you do it privately in your closet and you're uttering these words of uh, non-translatable gibberish to God and you're being edified in your spirit somehow miraculously, oops, in an unknown way, even though you don't know what you're saying, you're being edified. That is not what it's saying. That's twisting the scripture. All Paul's saying is if you're speaking in tongues and you don't have the the gift of translation, even though you don't have the gift of translation, you're still edified by the use of your gift. It can be very fulfilling to use any spiritual gift. I get fulfilled and edified when I teach. Sometimes uh, I'll leave either Sunday school or a sermon or seminary, and I'll, I'll, uh, right after seminary, I'm in the car driving, man, that was cool, that was awesome, man, what a great day of teaching. You know, my students could be thinking just the opposite. That was pathetic. What in the world? Did he even study? Man, that was boring. Anyway, and I am just edified. Wow, thank you, God, for that opportunity. So there are many times I was content, I was blessed, I was edified, I was excited by the fact that I could just use my gift. That's all Paul is saying. It is legitimate that some of you Corinthians have the gift of speaking in tongues. It is legitimate for you to use it. I will acknowledge that if you use it legitimately, you will be encouraged and edified that God gave you that very unique and limited ability. It is awesome. It's a sign gift. It is a miraculous gift. There are gifts that are not sign gifts or really miraculous, like the gift of giving. That's not a sign gift. It's not uh, super extraordinary. God uses the human will. It, it, there's just They're different in terms of quality. But tongues was very unique. Amazing. Kind of like being an apostle or a prophet to do some of the things they did that other people couldn't do. Giving. One gift that might be very different. Um, so the one who... Verse 4, speaks in a tongue, edifies himself because he has the gift. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. That's the point of prophecy. You speak for God to the people. You give biblical content. You give divine revelation for the specific purpose of teaching the people, exhorting the people, and comforting the people. It's directed to the audience. It's other-oriented. It, it edifies in and of itself by its very usage. It's not edifying yourself primarily and directly the way tongues could be if it's not translated. There's another reason why prophecy is greater. It edifies the people who hear it. People who hear tongues may not be edified at all. They may be just crazily confused without a translator. If it's not my mother tongue and it's not translated, it is gibberish, even if it was legitimate in Paul's day. And nobody's edified who hears it. That's his point. That's why prophecy is greater. That is, if tongues is left untranslated. Verse 5. Now I wish, now Paul's being idealistic or hyperbolic here. Now I, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. I wish you did. Now he's, again, hyperbolic. This doesn't mean that every Christian should be speaking in tongues. That is not what it means. Some charismatics will say that to validate and say every Christian should be speaking in tongues. Well, no, that's not true. And then they'll go to this verse right here. Paul said, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues. 
well, that's idealistic, hyperbolic as a teacher. He's exaggerating the exact same phrases used in 1 Corinthians 7 when he spends that whole chapter trying to fix all of their marriage problems and their dating problems and their engagement problems and their intimacy problems. And he makes the statement at the beginning on the front end, and he says, you know, I wish you were all sing. I wish you all had the gift of singleness. That's what he said. It is the exact same. Why was he saying that? Because then I wouldn't have to be dealing with this big mess on my hands. If everybody was single and had the gift of singleness, we wouldn't be talking about problems in marriage, problems in engagement, problems in dating. And he's saying the exact same phrase here. I wish you all spoke in tongues the right way, the proper way, and we wouldn't be spending three chapters right now. And I have to sort out this very complicated, confusing mess. That's what he means. That's all it means. Because he's already said not everybody speaks in tongues. He said that at the end of chapter 12, clearly not everyone speaks in tongues. Not every Christian is an apostle. Not every Christian translates Translate, so not every Christian is supposed to have all the gifts. So, like I said, one of the main teachings in the charismatic movement since the early 1900s is that every Christian should, not just can, should be speaking in tongues. That's patently false from the Bible. Clear. And Jack Hayford, uh, Pastor Jack Hayford in Southern California, probably one of the most well-known and respected evangelical charismatic pastors for almost 50 years, was on the radio, wrote a study Bible, um, his two grandsons were in my, Christian, my, in my class when I taught at a Christian school 30 years ago. Sweet boys. Um, and Jack Hayford uh, knew what I'm saying now. He, he saw that problem in Scripture that, um, yeah, it is pretty clear in some of these passages that it says that not every Christian can speak in tongues. So that's why he adopted, like many charismatics, say, well, there's two different kinds of speaking in tongues. There's the one in Acts chapter 2, and then there's the one in 1 Corinthians 14. So, yeah, that is true. 1 Corinthians, or Acts chapter 2, I agree. Not everybody can do that. Only a few. But here's a different kind of tongues in chapter 14. I'd say, nope, they're the same. It's the same word. Same word, same context, same thing going on. There aren't two different kinds of speaking in tongues, just one. By the way, Jack Hayford, uh, he had a good sense of humor. And he's the one that would say publicly when he's teaching on it. Because he, he knew that charismatics kind of confused non-charismatics. So yeah, you non-charismatic people, you cessationists out there, I know we're a stumbling block to you, and you hear us speak in tongues, and you kind of wonder what it is, and you think it's not legit. And Yeah, I admit it, it sounds kind of goofy. Uh, and he would actually imitate it. Bada Mazda, shoulda bought a Honda. Bada Mazda, shoulda bought a Honda. Bada Mazda, shoulda bought a Honda. That's what he would say all the time. Uh, I got a Mazda about a few years ago. I did, and I, the ironic, I, I wanted a Honda. I wanted a Honda Accord. They were too expensive. So I ended up with a Mazda. But anyway, bought a Mazda, should have bought a Honda. Um, verse 5, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. So it's hyperbolic. That way I wouldn't have to deal with this. But fact of the matter is, reality is, it'd be like saying to your kids, I wish you were just perfect. I wish you were just perfect. We wouldn't have this problem. Or like my mom used to say to the 10 kids, I just, I wish you were never born. Uh, just kidding. Uh, well, actually, I'm not kidding. But um, now I wish that you spoke in tongues. But okay, we got to deal with reality. But even more that you would prophesy. That it's prophecy is the greater gift. Desire that gift, and get this: greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. I'm just telling you that is the exact opposite of what I was taught when I went to my charismatic churches. I was taught priority number one to aspire for is speaking in tongues. Paul says no. Prophecy is greater than tongues. Tongues is the bottom of the rung, especially when it is untranslated. So the one who uh, prophesies 
And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he translates. Again, translate is better than interpret. It doesn't need to be interpreted. It just needs to be translated. It's self-evident. If you just translate it, it's self-evident of what it means. Unless he translates. So that the church may receive edifying. So if you did speak in a tongue, a foreign language, and somebody was there and they did translate, then everybody would understand what was said and everybody would be blessed and edified. Then, you know what that was? That was the equivalent of prophecy. Then they became equal. So prophecy was greater than tongues if tongues was not translated. But if tongues was translated, then tongues was the equivalent of prophecy in terms of edification and even divine authority. So that's point number one. Very clear. Prophecy is greater than tongues. Uh, point number two. Let's go there. Tongues need to be translated. He's already mentioned this, verses 6 through 11. But now... Brethren, he's going to use himself as an example. Now he's going to give several examples of this truth. If I, the Apostle Paul, come to you speaking in tongues, it's kind of interesting, uh, the word glossa occurs about eight or nine times in this chapter, tongues. Sometimes it's singular tongue. Sometimes it is plural. Anytime Paul talks about himself, he uses the, the plural, tongues. I speak in tongues more than you all. If I come speaking in Tongues, which could very well, when Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all, that could very well mean that Paul had the ability, he, he definitely had the gift of speaking in tongues. But because it was plural and he said, I speak in tongues more than you all, probably that means that he had the ability to speak many different languages supernaturally because he was a missionary all over that world. And he'd go into all these dialects and little towns and different countries and God probably as an apostle gave him that ability so he could speak, he could make it plural. I actually have the, the ability to speak in tongues, a plurality thereof. Uh, the majority of the time when Paul is talking to the Corinthians, he uses the singular form of glossa tongue. And it could very well be that they had one language that they could speak. Maybe it was, uh, not Egypt or, you know, Egyptian or some language. The few that had the legitimate gift, it was just one language, a language. So you guys here, you speak in this one language I keep hearing about. Um, I speak in many languages, just so you know. So I, I kind of know what I'm talking about. Plus, I'm an apostle. Plus, I started this church. Plus, I gave you the gospel and evangelized you. Um, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, plural, what will I profit you unless I speak to you, either by way of revelation or knowledge, prophecy, or of teaching? In other words, if I come in here speaking tongues in a foreign language that you do not understand and I do not translate, it will be absolutely meaningless and worthless. But if I do translate, my speaking in tongues will be the equivalent of all those things that he just said. It would be the equivalent of teaching, of prophecy, of knowledge, of revelation. So if it is not translated, it is absolutely meaningless. It doesn't edify Anybody, that is his point in verse 6. Then he says in verse 7, yet even lifeless things, and this is true even with lifeless things called instruments. There needs to be interpretation. There needs to be distinction. And he gives examples. There needs to be definition given to a musical instrument so that it makes sense. You can't just get up there and start uh, banging on the piano keys with all that dissonance that means nothing. But when you give it uh, nuance and meaning and order, you communicate something even musically to those who hear, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's a message. And Austin, if, if he played uh, one of these great hymns or songs that we know and cherish, whether it's uh, Amazing Grace, and he didn't even sing the words if he got up there and played Amazing Grace on the piano and didn't say anything, we would be blessed. We would know in, in your mind, because you know from the past, uh, it's talking about Jesus and shedding his blood for sinners, and uh, the keys are going in a certain order. 
And there's a, there's a translation in the communication. That's what Paul's using these instruments for. Uh, so let, let's look at his example. Uh, yet even lifeless things like the flute or the harp. By the way, the, the Greek word for harp is kathara, 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 which is where the origin of the word, if you look up guitar definition and the history of it, it's kathara. And so that's came from the Greeks. They had this thing that was a cross between a harp and a guitar. And so that's where the guitar came from. So the guitar is mentioned right here. Because I remember uh, being at a church where the, some of the elders, they didn't like guitars uh, up in church because they're unspiritual. It's the organ. It's, I was told, the organ. Because in the King James Bible in Genesis 4, it says the organ. Like, really? I didn't know organs existed 4,000 years ago. That's pretty cool. But anyway, and God, you know, and they didn't like guitars. But right there, it's not harp. It's kathara stringed instrument. And it means a lot of different instruments, including the guitar. But anyway, uh, either flute or harp or guitar or, hey, should I say banjo? Or ukulele? Uh, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? It won't be melodious. It won't be music. It'll just be noise pollution. Verse 8, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So even a, a bugle for the military has distinctions in the sounds and the notes that they make. You know, or, or time to get up in the morning, time for lunch, time for battle, time to go to bed, uh, the death of a fellow soldier, just all on a bugle with different notes that are being, that's a form of language, that's musical language, that's Paul's illustration. It is comprehensible, it is understandable, it is directed to the mind, we know what it means, it has application, tongues without translation, does none of that. It is meaningless, edifies no one. So this leads us to what was the main problem the Corinthians had with tongues? Well, apparently a lot of folks who thought they had the gift of tongues were legitimately did have the gift of tongues were just doing it publicly. You know, speak in Swahili or whatever it was, and they weren't translating it. And nobody in the congregation knew Swahili. And they're all doing it at the same time. And there's 15 people doing it. And they're dominating and monopolizing the time on the Lord's Day. And it was totally irreverent without decorum. And none of it was being translated, so people were just like, what in the world are they doing? But it was a showy gift. It was a cool sign gift. And creating just absolute mayhem, disorder. And that's why he says, boy, all that crazy stuff going on. And say you got visitors coming, and you're speaking Swahili, and they don't know Swahili, and there's no translation, and unbelievers are coming in. They're going to think you are cuckoo, cuckoo. Or you've been drinking too much sweet wine, as Acts chapter 2 said, if it is not translated. So he's using this illustration of instruments. Verse 9, he says, So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech, that is clear. There it is. This is not gibberish. Unless you are speaking clearly understandable language that has to be translated, it means nothing to anybody. How will it be known? What is spoken for you will be speaking into the air. Blah, blah, blah. Verse 10, There are perhaps a great many kinds of... It's not languages, it's voices. Voices in the world. It does refer to... Language, but there are many different kinds of languages or voices in the world, and no kind is without meaning. All legitimate human languages have meaning to them. They're discernible, they can be translated, they can be interpreted, they can be identified. Verse 11, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be the one who speaks like a barbarian. If I do not know the meaning of the language, so if I speak a foreign language, but I don't know how to translate it, to me it just sounds like gibberish. A barbarian, that's blah, 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 that's the Greek word. Blah, blah, blah. Really. And the one who speaks will be a blah, blah, blah to me. Onomatopoeia, Greek word. 
unless it's translated. Meaningless. So the point is, tongues needs to be translated. Okay, last point. So prophecy is greater than tongues. Tongues needs to be translated in order to edify. And leads us to the last point. Tongues is for edifying others. It is not for edifying yourself in your closet with gibberish as you think you're speaking to God. That is not the point of the gift at all. It says it clearly all throughout this chapter, particularly 12 through 19. So let's look at it. So also you, since you are zealous for spirituals or spiritual gifts, that's that's good, but uh, go after the gifts that edify. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. And even if you use tongues, do it to edify others, not yourself. Verse 13, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may in Interpret. So it could be that some had the latent gift of interpreting and they didn't care. They weren't even exercising that gift. Sometimes you have to explore uh, to find out what gift you have. Uh, pastor, I'm joining the church and I'm supposed to use my gift. I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. We've heard that time and time again when people join a church. And you have there's an exploratory process. Well, start doing stuff. Uh, what do you desire to do? What do you like to do? Where's the need? Start doing it and see what happens and see if God uses you, if you bless other people, if that's confirmed by the saints, if you have great contentment and fulfillment doing that, maybe it comes naturally to you. And there are people in the Corinthian church that apparently had the gift of speaking in tongues and they even had the gift of translation, but they were not interested in exploring the gift of translation because they wanted to be showy. And as a matter of fact, uh, they kind of wanted to hoard their gift. You know what, I'm going to speak this cool supernatural gift of speaking in tongues, but I'm not going to translate it because I don't want people to know because I want them to be in awe of me. That's how self-centered and selfish they were. That's why he's saying pray that you might translate. Pray and see God and see you because you might have, if you have the gift of tongues, it is possible you also have the gift of translation. If you had the gift of tongues, there was no guarantee you had the gift of translation, but it was possible. That's why I pray. It's not... Dear God, give me this gift. I want it now. It's, dear God, reveal to me whether I have been already given the gift of translation to go along with my gift of tongues. That's what he means. That's why he says, um, seek edification. That is the priority. If you speak in a tongue, inquire and see if you also have the gift of translation. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. We already talked about this, but my mind is unfruitful if I don't have the gift of translation. I'm actually doing something legitimate, speaking a foreign language, but I don't even know what it means unless I have the gift of translation. Verse 15, what is the outcome then if I'm not translating the gift of tongues? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with my mind also. That's what you need to be doing. You need to pray with understanding. Seek a translator. Seek God to see if he'll give you the gift of translation. Find a translator in the congregation so that you'll have understanding in your mind as well. Uh, and then he gives different forms of speaking in tongues. Um, I will pray. It's a form of public prayer. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing. That's solo where we get psalms. I will sing in tongues with the Spirit and I will also sing with the understanding as I do it. Uh, 16, I will also do tongues in blessings, eulogies. That's a form of prayer in my spirit. How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, say the amen if it's not translated at your giving of thanks through speaking in tongues. No one can say amen, brother, I agree with you. Because that's what amen means. It means uh, absolutely. I am in agreement with you. Uh, that is true. Verily, verily. So it's okay to say amen. Amen? Amen, that's what it says. By the way, the word amen uh, in Greek is amen in Hebrew and amen in Aramaic and amen in English and Amen and Pig Latin, I think. But um, 
Amen, if you do a scriptural search of amen, the word amen, this is key, is a technical phrase and response. The response of the congregation, there it is. This is not a private practice saying amen. It is a response in the congregation, in the corporate assembly, in response to, get this, public prayer. Specific examples. First Chronicles 16.36, Nehemiah 8.6, Psalm 106, verse 48, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16. You speak in a tongue. You pray in a tongue. You give a translation. It is understood by the people. They just heard divine special revelation. And as a response, God's people are overwhelmed and blessed. And they say, Amen. Amen, Lord Jesus. That's what that means. And if you don't understand it, you can't say amen. So it needs to edify others. At your giving of thanks, um, since he does not know what you are saying, he can't say amen. He can't agree with you. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks through speaking in tongues well enough. But the other person is not edified. So that's what the Corinthians were doing. Some of them were speaking in tongues. They weren't translating it. And others were listening. They didn't even know what in the world's going on. And nobody's saying amen. They're scratching their head saying, what in the world is going on? They're not edified. Undermining the main gift or point of the gift. Verse 18. And Paul just says in conclusion, it's kind of a rebuke. Uh, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Sometimes cessationists say that tongues... Uh, tongues doesn't exist. Tongues was never a gift. Yeah, it was. Absolutely a very vital gift. One that communicated divine revelation. An amazing gift. Actually, I wish I had the biblical gift. Uh, don't. I think it, I think it ceased. Why do you think it ceased? Because we saw that in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 last week. Paul predicted tongues will cease. Middle voice, pow, oh, in and of itself, whoosh, when it is no longer needed. It's going to fizzle out. And it did. Church history testifies to that. I thank God I speak in tongues more, plural, more than you all. Verse 19, however, in the church, again, key, it's in the corporate assembly. It's not a private prayer language. In the church, in the assembly, when you gather in the church, I desire to speak just five intelligible words with my mind through teaching, through prophecy, whatever it is, so that I might edify other people. I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others. It's all about edifying the saints and building up the saints rather than 10,000 words, a, a myriad of words, that's countless words. It's more than 10,000. The Greek word he used, myriad. Rather than 10,000 words in a tongue when it is not translated because it doesn't edify anything, anybody because it, uh, nobody knows what it means. Paul's going to go on now for the rest of the chapter and point out that tongues is also a sign. And it's a sign. he says it's a sign. Get, get this. This is a huge problem. Speaking in tongues was a sign for unbelievers. It was not a sign for believers. In other words, Paul is saying, what in the world are you speaking in tongues for anyway? in the congregation if there aren't any unbelievers or visitors around. You're defeating the purpose. It's for visitors and unbelievers. That's how it was used in Acts 2. And when you do have visitors come, you don't translate. And they don't know the language. And they are confused. And you undermine the testimony of Christ. And you scare them away. Don't do that. So we're going to continue with this uh, chapter 20 or uh, 14, 20 through the end of the chapter, as we continue to search God's word, the help of the Holy Spirit in each other, trying to understand a very complicated issue. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father and thank him for our time together. Father, we do thank you for your word. I thank you that when you saved every Christian, you eradicated their sin and blotted it out because the blood of Jesus 
that you gave us your Holy Spirit to live in us, to be our advocate and comforter and teacher. God, also through the Spirit, you gave us spiritual gifts, uh, supernatural abilities of service to bless others in the church congregation so that you can grow the body of Christ. Remind us of that priority truth, God. And in the meantime, as we continue to search the scriptures together and learn together, we would do so with humility, waiting on you, and forevermore asking for clarity on the part of your spirit and your word. Uh, We thank you. We love you. We commit this day to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.